Hey folks. <laughs> it's another down low unsung episode from your unsung hosts, Vicky, Mark and Chris. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Uh, this is not a quiet song. <laughs> no, I feel like this is more is a bit more. It's got a massive sax solo. <laughs> it's got it's got a massive everything to be fair. Like nothing, everything's turned up to eleven in this song. Getting a bit ahead ourselves here. So mm-hmm. welcome to Unsung. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are the bite-sized episodes of Unsung, where we take uh, the opportunity to look at individual tunes that might, or as in the case of the Temptations, might not be <laughs> be unsung. Right, okay, or. pot kettle. <laughs> we'll see. Anyway, uh, so in the past we've done things like uh, Journey. Journey. <laughs> Journey was a good one. The Tuxedo Moon. Tuxedo Moon. That was definitely unsung. That's a great episode. Yeah. Uh, did Duran Duran. Uh, what did Dave pick? The Mooborg year? He did. Yeah. yeah. So we not take really in unsung individual enough, tracks. Yeah often by bands that really could never qualify for the show in any other capacity and we kind of look at these tunes and the significance and maybe interesting things about them that you don't know as well uh this week i have chosen a, a whopper and actually it, it's a shout out to my friend craig my man who i know will be listening to this absolutely pitching a tent because he loves this tune <laughs> i have chosen waiting for a start to fall by boy meets girl Is this one of the biggest one-hit wonders of all time? Interesting. Interesting. So, there's quite a lot to say about this, actually. Um, surprisingly so. This this track came out in 1988. Uh, it featured on their second album, which was called Real Life. Real spelled R-W-E. Do you remember when this song came out? Uh, you know what? Probably vaguely, yeah. I, I think mean, I do Seven-year-old, and it, it was... I, I liked it. I mean, I, I always liked the song. It was in Three Men and a Little Lady. It was in Three Men and a Little Lady. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so their their second album, that's an album that, if you, I mean, if you know this tune, sounds more or less exactly how you think it would sound. <laughs> um, this tune was written and recorded by a couple, a real-life married couple, George Merrill and Shannon Rubicam, which is a really unusual name, mm. Rubicam. Uh, they are now divorced. Oh, but still working together. Hey. Got an album out last year. <laughs> uh, their daughter uh, is in the, the video for this single. Mm-hmm. Have, have you seen it? The wee girl running about with blonde hair. That's their, their real life daughter. Um, you know, watching the video, the couple in the video come ac- and it is the, the songwriters come across like a shop brand Michael Bolton and Belinda Carlisle. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah. absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. Um, so the title "Wait for a Star to Fall" apparently, apocryphally, uh, this was written after seeing a fallen star at a Whitney Houston concert in LA. Talking of which, this duo had written uh, Whitney Houston's hit "How Will I Know" from her first album. And they actually hoped that Arista Records might consider this track for Whitney Houston's second album, but the head of Arista at the time, Clive Davis, rejected it. That second album, the very, very famous album, Whitney, it was mega huge, uh, featured So Emotional, and it also, of course, featured I Wanna Dance With Somebody.
which was a tune also written by this couple. I hate that song. Uh, man, that song is a fucking legit banger. That is that is a dance floor filler. I want to dance with somebody. Yeah. Oh, it's, I know, but I hate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I I can't say I'm a huge fan of the song in its own right, but see if you're ever running a club night and things are a bit flat. That's me. the one to play, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, man, I think... Whitney Houston, that's a fucking oversight not having Whitney Houston sing this song. Well, totally. so, so here we go, right? So I want to make this case, right? Because clearly this track has, what, nearly 70 million plays, right? It's very, very famous. However, I don't mm-hmm. think this track's nearly as famous as it should have been. Because Whitney Houston was offered it and it was passed up. And I think Whitney Houston would have absolutely fucking smashed this song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would have totally fitted with that era of her stuff. Now, after that rejection, it was also offered to Belinda Carlyle. Uh, mm-hmm. aforementioned kind of pound shop Belinda Carlyle it was offered to Belinda Carlyle who actually recorded a demo of it which I'll cut in now And then they decided not to include that on her 1987 mega album, Heaven on Earth, another fucking huge 80s album. Her version is rough as fuck, it's totally a demo, the vocals are a mess, and the synth in it sounds like it was played by like some 60-year-old guy in a leather jacket and shades at a pub. Um, but as huge as both of those albums are, Whitney and Heaven on Earth, it is really saying something that I think both albums would have been improved by having this song on them by mm. their respective artists. So, Do you think that Michael Bolton would have been good at it? Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, you know what? See, because of the duet thing, can you imagine if Michael Bolton and Belinda Carlisle, the real ones, had done it? Mm. That would have been fucking enormous. That would have been like that literally been... one of the songs of the 80s, like one of the songs of the 1980s. It still is one of these songs of the 1980s. It, well, it, it is, but, um, is. It, but the thing is, it is and it isn't. Because I think we exaggerate in our minds how successful this tune actually was. Partly I think that is because it's aged really well, it's lasted really well. And it was it was remixed and it was put into like a dance tune. Yeah, it, it was in a big, big dance tune as well, yeah. So Boy Meets Girl have other albums. Uh, their, their, their only album prior to this was self-titled, came out in 1985. They're tracking that old girl, I'll cut in. And you're holding your hand on love, you let it fall from the right. I fell for the love and it cost me another painful night. It's this insanely, gloriously cheesy 80s stuff. They've got that loads of that slappy Stratocaster. <laughs> um, the synths, the drum samples, it's, it's fucking brilliant. It's pure retro heaven. Um, the 1988 release of this, though, only got to number five in the USA and only got to number nine in the UK. And in my head, it was a fucking huge single. And I know that's respectable, but I'd, I honestly thought it was like right up there, you know, a, a, a number one or two. Uh, but no, it wasn't even close in, in chart terms. I suppose um, it depends who it was up against as well, right? That's mm-hmm. like the peak time it does but I mean number 9 in the UK it feels like way bigger than a 9 the song as you said later featured in the closing credits to Three Men and a Little Lady in 1990 Mm -hmm. two years after its initial release Mm -hmm. so it was re-released as a single then but it charted really low then so you might have heard it the first time it came out from memory or you might actually remember if Hearing it the two years later, it was maybe the later time, a little bit older. Um, Also, the B side to that re-release is called "The Three Men Rap," 
Hmm. Uh, <laughs> which features, I'm, I'm sure you can guess it, is Selick dancing in Gutenberg doing the rap from the, the film. Say, Mary, did you brush your teeth? Yo! Now, Mike, be nimble. Peter, be quick. Jack, bust a rhyme and make it slip. And little lady Mary, we say, please just close your eyes and catch some Z's. Three hunky men doing yeah. a rap. <laughs> Um, so 90s <laughs> So it, The song itself it, It's mental to me That a more established artist Didn't pick up on this It really is Like Maybe the demos That the, the couple pitched Were a wee bit shite I don't know It's famous But it's There's no way This is as famous As, as it would have been In my opinion If Whitney Houston Or Belinda Carlisle Had recorded a proper version mm. I mean the, This couple You said they Are they the ultimate One hit wonder couple I would dispute that purely because this couple have written two other number one songs, albeit they didn't release it as Boy Meets Girl, but they are like very respected songwriters and that very successful songwriters of the era. So One Hit Wonder is it's got to have an asterisk on it. You know, yes, this was Boy Meets Girl's one big tune, but this couple were successful in, in the industry. So that is a bit misleading unless you give it the fuller context. There's, there's definitely something about the 1980s, though, distinctly, that made a song like this possible. And, and, and only that era really made it possible because that embrace of excess and kind of unbridled, goofy romanticism <laughs> tempered with a hint of naivety because people have tried to recapture that in the years later, but they're too self-aware. I think it was a lack of self-awareness at the time that made big, bold OTT statements kind of possible. Mm-hmm. And it's also partly why, in hindsight... We're so fond of them because there is a kind of stupidity to them, you know, like a, a dumbness to it. Um, also, I think the fact that a couple came up with this is pretty remarkable considering the industrial approach to songwriting that you have now, where you're flying, you know, 20 producers from around the world to put them in rooms together to try and brainstorm something. This was a married couple that were just really, really good at songwriting. And that's, I think that's fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. That's a very organic process. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I also... I think that because of what happened, because it wasn't released by Whitney Houston and it wasn't released by Belinda Carlisle, they had to auteur it. They, they, they clearly had had these other songs released, were probably frustrated that this didn't get what it deserved and decided, fuck it, we're going to do it and we're going to do it right. And as a result, you've got a version of it that is completely pure. Like, it is autoured. There are no tweaks. If this had been done by Whitney, I can imagine it being changed to fit her range or maybe to fit her style. If it had been done by Belinda Carlisle, it would have probably had a slightly different production approach to be more in keeping with hers. What you have is the purest vision directly from the people that wrote it. This is exactly how they wanted it to sound. And I honestly can't imagine it sounding much better. I think it could have been more successful by another artist, but in terms of just the execution of it... It's just quintessential. It's kind of 80s. Absolutely. It it belongs in an 80s soundtrack. I know we said it was in... um Three men and a little lady, but it's just see that saxophone thing oh, that are in yeah. all of these like eighties songs. There's just something really kind of evocative about it. It just takes me right back. Do you know? I, I think we talked about it in one of the Christmas episodes, but that saxophone in this song reminds me of the body form adverts. <laughs> Form, narrow at the back for comfort, wider at the front for absorbency, uniquely shaped for total confidence, even on your heaviest days. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? It keeps, you know, in um, 
In St. Elmo's Fire, Rob Lowe's character plays saxophone in a band that's considered the cool bad mm-hmm. boy thing to do. Yeah. And it's just like, what is the fascination mm-hmm. with saxophones in these songs? It's like... In the 80s in general. 80s I mean, in I would, general. It did get me wondering about that, right? Because it's an affectation to have saxophone in these 80s songs, especially excessive fucking OTT saxophone, it's like so Lost Boys. and uh, think it, yeah, oh, Lost Boys Lost as well. Boys totally. as well yeah, I still believe that. That'll come up as an unsung at one mm-hmm. point. So the, the, there's loads of the like excessive sax. And why also is it excessive (laughs) sex unprotected (laughs) sex it's the biggest dad joke we've ever had podcast (laughs) why is it as well that saxophones are so evocative of New York City do you not get Mm. that it really sounds like somebody strutting confidently like power dressed woman walking to the office down in New York City probably because they were used in the movies and and, (laughs) and that was a lot of the scenery in the 80s it's amazing how it's become so Mm -hmm. mentally entangled Mm -hmm. with that though Mm -hmm. I think also not just the sax the synth that introduces this that duplicates the the vocal melody right Mm -hmm. at the start that's actually not something that's done very much anymore it's retro as fuck and I think it's a really interesting technique it's gimmicky and I don't think we maybe even consciously recognise how twee that actually is to copy the line, you know, to just give you like once or twice through the main vocal hook on a synth, like foreshadowing it. Um, In terms of the structure of the song, okay, this song is clearly all about the chorus, right? The chorus is fucking enormous, but it's a very evenly arranged tune. I don't think the verses are throwaway at all, which you do get in a lot of these songs. Actually, the pre-chorus for me, you know that bit of uh, trying to catch mm-hmm. it? I think that's as strong as the chorus. It's, it's, we've talked about it way back in the Idlewild episode that they had a knack for putting in not just a good chorus but a good pre-chorus a double chorus yeah effectively a double chorus mm-hmm. like two different big big hooks and I think that's fucking genius because that mm-hmm. then you've got a step up and then another step up and that is just fucking glorious and it's all gravy once you've done that mm-hmm. you know you can just have fun with the rest of the song and, and they really do because I mean like the last chorus kicks in it's got just a little held pause that's, that's, right. a, that's mm-hmm. a really flamboyant performative thing that I think is really effective but if you've got such a strong ground and you can do what you want uh, they've got a key shift in here I was going to say there's two a key, key changes key in this key song eye. so that's fucking brilliant they've got the solo clearly which is a fucking outrageous mm-hmm. fucking sax solo that's another hook In its own way, because if you're in a bar and this comes on, everybody starts air miming sex. Um, air sex? <laughs> 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 it's, it's, uh, to continue the metaphor, it's absolutely dripping with catchy bits. Like a busted fridge. <laughs> <laughs> and hooks, riffs, um, and, and honestly, that's before you even get into the nitty gritty of the production, because actually it's got loads of these cute little FM synthesizer bells and tones in it that are scattered through it to kind of emulate the sort of star, you know, the waiting for a star to fall they've got all these little sparkly chimes in they it do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's really beautifully arranged and you can tell there's a lot 
lot of love being put by the people that wrote this into realising that vision. Um, they love a slap Stratocaster, that makes a reappearance, that detail never left them really for most of their career in the 80s. And as I said, the fact that the song's a duet as well, I think lends it a really good time vibe. Because if you do think about the other artists, so if Belinda Carlisle or Whitney Houston had done it, they would have been the lead vocal. There might have been a backing vocal, but that's not the same because having a dual vocal, it makes it celebratory. You know, it, it, it's reciprocal. It, mm-hmm. and, and it's even, that Jefferson Starship tri- type yeah, thing, isn't it? And rather than it just being like one unanswered sort of love poem from, you know, a, a, a narrator, you've got this trade-off, a back and forth that's much more of a play. Much, I think there's something much more uh, engaging and involving about that aspect of it, which, again, probably wouldn't have been there had it gone to one of those acts unless, like I suggested, they'd done a duet. with. Mm-hmm. And I really think if you're talking big names in the 80s, if you imagine like Michael Bolton and Belinda Carlisle duetting on this, it would have been fucking enormous. But that's the only other way I think it would have had that quality. Um, and lest we forget, all these things about the song are great. But the real money shot in this song is right on four minutes when the vocals shoot right up to that fucking high note and all the instruments drop out. I mean, that is like... An insane climax for a song that's already got half a dozen really fucking great moments. So yes, this tune is famous as fuck. I absolutely agree, but I think this tune should have been more famous. I think it's insane that the executives missed this. I think it's insane that Whitney Houston or Belinda Carlisle didn't have this in their arsenal, proper version of it. But as I say, had they done that, I think we as listeners might have missed out because I don't think the the ultimate version even though it may have been a bit more widely recognised or you know even more chart successful getting beyond to number nine in the UK wouldn't have been as charming it wouldn't have been as charming it wouldn't mm-hmm. have been as naive and as mm-hmm. as altered so I actually think given the quality of what's there it underachieved mm. this is, I think this is definitely even though they'd, they'd written songs and this was rejected a few times it, it's a total this is our CV moment right we can do this. We can we can write songs like this, big songs like. And they must have known that. They must yeah. have been a bit frustrated and confused. Mm-hmm. Like this is fucking great. Why aren't you taking this? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean this is that this is everything eighties, right? It's overproduced as fuck, but that works for it. You yeah. know, it's got it's got that sort of funky guitar thing, that slappy Stratocaster thing. Uh, it's actually got an R and B beat. It's got, kind of got, almost got an R and B feel to it on, on the drums, which is cool. It's the harmony and the chorus that punches it for me. I wouldn't call it a duet as such. I think it's just a female harmony which punches the guy's vocal in the chorus, but it does have an argument for both, I would say. It's not a trade-off duet, but I think you'd be hard-pushed off the top of your head to be like, is this sung by a woman or is this sung by a man? It's sung mm-hmm. by both. I would say the guitars are actually weirdly complex in it, um, if you listen closely to them. Uh, whoever the band were, they were fucking on it, man, like really, really on it. Like the syncopated bass keys, the clean, fat bass is like really great. Um, the middle eight... <laughs> It's, it's weird, isn't it? It's a, bit, it's a little palate cleanser. Like it's it's, it's, it's kind of rank. But you know, it, it's got that stinky quality to it where you're like, oh yeah, that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> like it's actually a little bit disgusting because it's so fucking 80s and like, Oh, yeah, but uh, yeah. I think that almost like it earns that. Mm. It earns the right to do something as yeah. fucking bulky as that. Mm. Uh, it goes a bit downbeat, but the key changes down to something else. 
and then they go back to the original chorus. Then they go for the second key change, which is just completely fucking outrageous. Yeah, it's outrageous, man. It fades out as well, which makes me think they're still in a room in some alternate reality playing it like endlessly, like some kind of visceral medieval torture. Well, to be fair, there are nightclubs that probably are trapped in a cycle of just effectively playing this perpetually, man. That'd be good concept art if you opened a nightclub and all you did was play the end of this song on a loop that's what like Damien Hurst should be doing <laughs> just just a nightclub to make fun of the notion of retro and just have a nightclub where you go in 24 hours a day it's a fully operational nightclub and it's just the last <laughs> 32 bars of this song an endless fucking cycle let's make that happen <laughs> 